Amarildo, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Hey, Eugene, how are you? Thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining me. I know there's a bit time difference between where I'm based and where you're based. I believe it's early morning in Vancouver at the moment. So thank you for uh, making the effort. No, thank you for reaching out to me. It's, it's really great to connect to, to fellow Albanians who do great work around diaspora. Well, thank you for the kind words. And that's how I came across you. You were posting on LinkedIn initially. You were trying to do some research on Albanian medical staff, doctors and nurses that work abroad. And that's what caught my attention. So I wonder if we can dive straight in in terms of what you found from that. Is there any brain drain from Albania, Kosovo? What have you found? Right. So medical diasporas are, are a very interesting topic. So I've, if I go, if I could backtrack a bit. So I've been engaged in diaspora issues for quite a bit. And what we've seen is that we saw a gap in, in literature when it comes to Albanian diaspora, medical diaspora living abroad. And we, together with Professor Lir Gudesh from the Center of Economic and Social Studies in Albania, we've been collaborating in previous in some um, projects before. And we thought, okay, there is, since there is a gap, let's do some research around it. And then, um, yeah, we conducted a mass survey with Albanian diaspora, ethnic Albanian diasporas, medical professionals, and more particularly on doctors living and working abroad. And we've been able to map around 6,000 medical doctors abroad, which is a bigger number than the government's report and a much smaller uh, number that organizations who live abroad report. So uh, we've been able to map them out to see their mobility, how they move from Albania, and see different waves waves of them. So uh, the article is in the works, so we've put it in for a publication, and it should be coming out very soon. So well, uh, that's, what, okay. that's what I'm going to say right now. You can't reveal too much. Okay, well, I look forward to reading that report. 6,000 is a lot, if you think about it, if you put it in perspective for a small population, relatively small population, such as Albania, Kosovo. But yeah, it's quite interesting to know that we're, we're training up, when I say we, um, Albania, Kosovo, is training up doctors and nurses, and they are leaving for other opportunities abroad. You're also an activist in other walks of life. And I also read one of your articles about the Albanian diaspora in Canada. It was quite an interesting read. You, you started the article by saying that you didn't want to criticize or, or effectively moan about it, but you wanted to start a discussion, a positive discussion around how you can improve the diaspora connectivity and the, the general uh, experience of the Albanian diaspora in Canada. Do you want to start off by perhaps shedding some light into what the Albanian experience is in Canada? Right. So um, the Albanian diaspora in Canada, it's, it's fairly new compared to the Albanian diasporas in other countries. And I would say that if I were to single out one single element that distinguishes the Albanian diaspora in Canada among other diasporas is that due to the immigration system in Canada, this diaspora is very educated because the Canada is one of the very few only countries that has a point-based system. So it means that they've only attracted individuals who had either had some, some sort of education prior to coming here. And obviously, being that only 40,000 are spread out through multiple provinces and Canada is huge, so there is there is some issues in how to best connect these individuals. And I think think from living in New York and working with diaspora organizations throughout Europe, I've realized that one of the issues is that 
we tend to criticize a lot without actually giving solutions. So this is, I figure out this is this would be a good approach to to reaching out Albanians and saying that hey, I know you're doing a really good job, but can we switch to so and so and so? Or can at least can we try to switch so and so and so? And we need to be as inclusive as possible. So if you saw in my article, I discussed that how okay, we've done great job on Albanian language schools. We've done some great jobs of actually having organization in the organizations in each province. However, we need to also engage different professionals so they're not left out. So we don't only have social events and um, cultural events. So we also need to create uh, that part of professional database and we also need to do on a policy making we also need to contribute a little bit on uh, on issues such as lobbying and advocating for the albanian causes my first observation there is so only the best make it to canada what you're saying is you made it there so you you're well educated you're doing well for yourself the rest of us you know for me living in the uk i can only get as far as the uk that makes me feel really great about myself um well that's not what i'm saying uh, uh, i'm only joking i think there are bright Albanian minds all over the world. However, due to the immigration system, the, the average individuals that are coming are coming people who have skills and degrees that at least have gotten some sort of degrees back home. But uh, there are bright Albanian minds all over the world. Yeah, I, I'm joking. I, I'd like to think that I'm also one of them. <laughs> Other activities that you've been involved with has been for an organization, uh, an NGO called German. Can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Right. So Gerbin is an organization that was launched by the current deputy minister of diaspora and foreign affairs in Kosovo about 15 years ago. So it was it was it started in a small organization that tended to connect people with their homeland. And then little by little, it outgrew. I came to work with this organization through a dear friend of mine who was also an activist in in Boston. He runs the Global Albanian Foundation, Mr. Mark Cosmo. So that's how I came to, to work with them. While I was in Albania, I saw some of the work that they did. And then I saw that they didn't have an office in Albania. So I worked with them to make sure that we initiate an office in Albania. So some of the projects that they had done in Kosovo to be replicated in Albania, some new projects that we had for Albania to uh, start implementing them in, in Kosovo. This is where I think this is where my uh, I found my passion about diasporas and uh, and uh, uh, organizations that work abroad. So working there for about a year and a half gave me the opportunity to connect with so many organizations, so many wonderful individuals who run organizations that do projects all across uh, the world. And then we're not inventing the wheel here. So some of the work that we're doing is that we're bringing small work that different organizations, Albania organizations across the world are doing and just putting them at a bigger scale. I also found out that you spent some time in Albania working as an advisor to the Minister of Health and Social Protection of Albania. What was your role there and how did this opportunity present itself to you? Okay, so after living in the United States for about a decade, I always tended to go back, but the right opportunity was never there. Working with the Albanian government as part of us as the Albanian government is not an easy issue to tackle because there is a lot of issues around dynamics of power, a little bit of corruption. So I always wanted to go back, but always wanted to find the right opportunity to go back. And then Albanian American Development Foundation has a fellowship program which they model after the White House uh, fellows. 
where they select a, a group of individuals and then they put them at the highest levels of administrations, such as advisor to the prime minister or ministers. Um, having worked in the healthcare field for, for quite some time and having studied it, uh, I wanted to, to go back to Albania and work as an advisor to the minister of health and social protection. I went there with a project to bring forward the, the healthcare legislation and the healthcare protocols of Albania to match that to the European Union, because I knew that eventually, since we come closer to open negotiations with the European Union, we need to make sure that our legislation, our, our clinical protocols are very close to that to the Euro Europe. So we so we're able to communicate in the same language and we talk the same language when we when we are part of the European Union. However, second week in my job, the earthquake in 2019 hit. So all of my plans and ideas just went out of the window because obviously focus was redirected through actually rebuilding a couple of the hospitals that were the one to ground in Albania. And then three months later, COVID hit. So then everything went out of the window again. We focused on, on actually how to tackle COVID. Uh, I would say that as an individual who aspires to some someday work in healthcare leadership, that was a prime opportunity for me. I know it, it has been a uh, it is a it hasn't been a good moment for all of us, including myself. We've lost family members, we have lost loved ones. Some of us even risk ourselves almost dying from COVID because in the beginning there was no vaccine, there were no protocols. But from a professional perspective, it was a it was a really good opportunity to learn how government works in difficult times, how easy, how agile the government is, and how how quick the government is able to transform from one position of not knowing what things are and how things are going to being able to provide services to its citizens. The earthquake situation in Albania three years ago was devastating, really sad news to see. And also memories of that time have been resurrected with the events in Turkey recently. So condolences go out to all those that have lost loved ones in Albania and Turkey recently. So that must have been quite, a, there must have been a negative mood in the ministry during that tragedy. Um, I'd like to know more about how Albania actually dealt with COVID. Was it as polarized as in some of the Western countries? So for example, in the US, I know that if you were on the left, you were pro-vaccine, pro-mask, and if you're right-wing, then it was screw the vaccine, screw the masks, don't take our freedoms. Was was there any of that dynamic happening in Albania uh, during COVID? I think it was very little of that. You know, working working in a government, I expected to have more issues, but I think countries that middle countries and developing countries such as Albania, I think people are more prone to accept public health measures rather than developed countries. So Albanians were very abiding. For example, I I recall back right now some policies that we might think that, okay, they are strange nowadays, but for the moment they were, they made sense. For example, allowing people to go out and shop at a certain times based on uh, their age, based on their I don't know, passport numbers that I know the Kosovo did that based on the numbers that your ID has. Those policies at the time sounded right, and people abided by them. Most people really abided by them. It was really, it was a strange feeling traveling through Tirana and only meeting a few policemen and just uh, some other servicemen that uh, uh, they were doing their work and people were staying at home. So um, I think Albania did 
fine when it comes to citizens and how they accepted their uh, their healthcare policies that were implemented. As far as the work that the government did, uh, there's always room to be improved. And uh, I'm sure that being on the inside, uh, all I can say is that the intent was always good. And at the beginning, that's all we knew. It's not that we knew a lot. And we have to understand where we are. We're not the United States. We're not able to, to scramble. We don't have the capabilities to scramble, I don't know, medical equipment within 24 hours. We are who we are. That is, this is our capacity. And I think most uh, most people did their their best. And I think medical doctors did their best, despite some issues and criticism that has arisen and some bad experiences that most of us firsthand have encountered. Medical doctors did, did their best with, with what they had. That's very good to hear. And I'm sure most of it was down to your advice. There, is, uh, there's a, there was a whole team of professionals that I think if there's one thing that I really learned is that sometimes people who live in diaspora and us, we, we criticize people in Albania for things that they do and how they do them. But actually going in there, they're people with immense amount of knowledge. In the team that we worked in, we had people who had studied at Oxford, who had done, who had taught at Harvard. So it's not that there there's lack of qualified individuals. It's just the system it it is slow because it is a developing country. So there is there's bright minds in Albania in Albania as well. So I love that positive spin to this. Uh, it's great to hear good positive stories about the homeland and and precisely why I want to tell the stories of high achieving Albanians because I'm too aware of how talented we are as a people but some of our achievements get lost and they don't have they don't have a platform to be promoted or celebrated so that comes as, as no surprise to me that Albania has very talented individuals there but as you say and I would have to agree with you the system sadly is a little bit outdated and you know as we transition from what was the communist era over 30, 30 years ago, there still has to be a, a generational change to completely eradicate that, that sort of system and transition into a more westernized, less corrupt way of running the country. I totally, I totally agree with you. Change isn't easy. It is difficult. So for us that we have left, it's easy to give a lot of ideas on how things should be run. But for people who live there, it's much more difficult and much more uh, complex of an issue to, to implement change. So all we can do is just hope, share positivity and make sure that somebody will listen to us and then eventually we'll implement something. So, Yeah, well, you've done more than just talk. You've obviously put your words into action. You've spent time there. You've, you've been involved with many different things by going back. It's not as if you, you left Albania and never turned your head back. You've actually gone there and provided your your help and support and your expertise so you should feel proud of yourself you're currently a researcher at the center for evaluation and clinical epidemiology can you explain a bit more about what it is that you do and what it is that your um, organization does right so there are two research organizations two main research organizations in uh, in vancouver that work around the issues of healthcare and i work in in one of them as a as a researcher, the um, the work that I do is in health technology assessment. So what we do is that we analyze um, new technologies that governments wants to put forward, and we make sure that we perform a clinical assessment as well as an economic 
evaluation and how much it would cost for the government in the next 10 or 100 years if they were to provide said technology for free for its citizens. My team is a is a small team, but very, very effective because we're the only one that does health technology assessment in, in British Columbia. That's interesting. Uh, moving off topic, but I was looking at Google Images for British Columbia before this call, and it's absolutely stunning. Do you get a chance to visit much of the nature um, around where you live, or are you too busy doing a PhD and working full time? While I was while I was living in New York, I always had a chance to visit Toronto, and it was very close by. Toronto is absolutely lovely. It matches more with New York City, but I just didn't like the cold. I knew that healthcare system in in US would be would not be something that I would want to work on because it's a private healthcare system, and I do believe the government should be able to uh, give the citizen coverage of healthcare. So its citizens, since they're paying high amount of taxes, they should they should not die because of they do not get medical care. I always wanted to to come live in Canada. So out of all the provinces, the the warmest ones was was British Columbia, and uh, this is why we we relocated to Vancouver. And you're right, is <clears throat> it is an absolute uh, stunning city. It has it doesn't have a lot of history as many uh, European cities have because the the country is fairly new. However, it has a lot of things to do from um, start from the UBC campus, which is a, a very famous one. Thousands and thousands of movies have been shot at, at UBC campus to different islands, Victoria, or um, there's lots of things that you can do. I've, we've had a chance, both myself and my wife have had a chance to move a bit, but we're hoping this summer to move a lot more that uh, both of us will have some free time. Oh, nice. Uh, what activities are there to do in, in the area where you live? So there's the ocean, so you can always go fishing and, you know, ride a boat. Uh, there is the mountains are not very far. Within 30 minutes, you're in the closest mountains. So during the winter times, you you can go skiing, um, meet friends, chat. And uh, Vancouver, downtown Vancouver is a very lovely city where you can try uh, different cuisines from all over the world. And uh, what we recently found is that uh, it is probably the second capital of um, sushi. So it's, it's they make lovely sushi. You can find in every corner store, you will find wonderful sushi. Uh, they they claim Vancouver to be the, the second best city after Tokyo. Um, I want to touch upon uh, something you mentioned regarding the system for healthcare. So you highlighted your disapproval of the healthcare system in the US, which is private, as we all know. Now, I live in the UK, and the UK has a, a public healthcare system. It's called the Nas National Health Service, the NHS. And in recent years, it's hit the headlines. I'm not sure if you're aware of it for being overburdened in population growth, you know, both organically and from immigration has led to there being a shortage of doctors and nurses. That that problem has been made worse by the fact that, you know, in recent times we've had a number of strikes due to inflation and demand for higher wages. And I'm not qualified to opine on this, but I want to know your take on how can you make a public healthcare system a viable one to the point where it's it's run efficiently. Wow, that is a very loaded question, actually. But yeah, uh, 
it is an important one to raise. And, and I think that people who work in, um, who analyze the healthcare system, that is the, that is a bigger question that they get tackled with every day of, of their work. We just have to accept that there is no perfect system. And it's a matter of principle. So if you're going to United countries like the United States, which have a, which has a private uh, healthcare system, that you will see too much efficiency. And what too much efficiency has caused them is that uh, people who are in need, lower level of individuals, such as people who living in, in who live in assistance or immigrant communities, they do not get the access to healthcare because they just simply can't. So they're able to get very low quality, very low quality of care. And countries like Canada at least are able to provide the basic healthcare needs. For so in in private healthcare system, it is good for the rich and the ones that who have the means and the poor really struggle. In public healthcare systems, the issue of equity is not much of issue equity because everybody is able to access the healthcare. Uh, it's only a matter of education. We need to educate the individuals who are less qualified to access the healthcare. That is, I think, this is where the the issue raises. As far as means and how to fix it, I do love how Canada has it because the uh, federal government pretty much is in charge of the healthcare as far as when it comes to spending. However, it delegates its own healthcare spending to different provinces. So, for example, if if the federal government in uh, or the government in the UK would would give X amount of funding to NHS London, then they would take care of their own spending. So this is one way that countries have tried to to tackle that. Another way is in between public healthcare systems, they have tried to implement some private healthcare systems for people who need them the most. So thankful enough here in Vancouver, if people need a bypass surgery through the heart, they're able to go to Seattle, which is only one hour away. So they have that opportunity. However, in, in, if you live in Northern Territories, it is impossible to go to to U.S. So having probably a mix of both would be a, a solution that would, would provide still the basic needs for individuals who... Um, need them the most, but also provide a niche um, opportunity for people who are who have the means and then want to receive a better quality care. I'll say you this though, so I, I, I've worked in hospitals for um, about four years in the US and then I recently had, had to do a, a surgery here in, in Vancouver and the quality of care between a private health one and public, it is almost the same. So I, I was very pleased to see that throughout the my um, my process through the hospital from the moment I walked in the door and from the moment I was discharged was similar to the experience that I would experience in U.S. in a private healthcare system. So I was very happy to see that. Yeah, it's good to hear. In, in fact, I had a similar experience as well. So I had shoulder surgery on the NHS many years ago. And the same consultant or, or surgeon that did my shoulder surgery, I had further issues with the same shoulder and I saw him privately through my through my private medical care through my work scheme and it was the same guy <laughs> and I said to him what are you doing here and he said well I split my time and, and it was only then when I realized that these surgeons and cons medical consultants it's the same skill it's the same talent it's the same individuals they just split their time between working privately and working for the NHS I'm not sure if it's the same over, over there in Canada, but over here, because there's a shortage of doctors, you know, they're, they're effectively employed by both the private and the public sector. Right. 
they don't have the option here in Canada, but the UK has it similar to what Albania has. A lot, if you go back to Albania, a lot of doctors work in the public health care system. You'll see them in the evening in the public hospitals, and in the afternoon you'll see them in a in the private one. I think it is a really good solution. We need to have we need to be cautious though as to uh, making sure that we have uh, regulations in place to make sure that this work is done properly and there's no there's no misuse of of, of such practices. But I think it is a good solution for countries who are struggling with doctors and uh, have an abundance of individuals that they need to take care of. Amarildo, so we've discussed a lot about your activism and your current research. I'd like to really back in time, if we can, to just figure out more around what you studied, how you made it to New York from Albania and what your academic background is. So, yes, I was I was born in in Albania in 1993, and then I switched schools from a, from a village to a capital. So I moved from from very small school of 10 individuals to, to bigger schools. And then I thought that was a big change for me until 2012. And then I was searching around for schools. And then I found a couple of schools in New York. Thankfully, my family was willing to, to pay for my education because education in the US is not an easy endeavor to take on. And then uh, I ended up in upstate New York did four years of biochemistry had an absolute blast uh first meeting first week i was meeting with individuals from all across the world they had a, it was a very diverse school i think in my cohort there were probably 55 countries so it was very representative on uh of called different cultures and different uh people I think that was a really great experience for me to get to you know different individual different perspectives and then i went on to uh, do an MBA in the same school and work in a hospital as a laboratory assistant and a quality academy team lead for uh, a couple of years. And I think I had reached my maximum at the hospital and the position that I was in. And I always wanted to try try and go back. And thankfully, in, in 2019, the opportunity arose. Can we talk about your forensic anthropology? All right. So my university, since 1991, they had been going back to send teams of students who needed some sort of credits in anthropology in Butrint National Park. I, in one of the years, I joined them in that in that endeavor, and it was really, really interesting to see the work that different teams, different Albanian and foreign teams, have been doing in the National Park of Butrint. Uh, sorry, just for our listeners who don't know. Uh, much about Butrin. That's a UNESCO protected site, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so obviously, the, all the work that is that's been done there, it, it is uh, very well regulated, and the teams need to have qualifications to to work there. I was lucky enough to to work with two two professors that have done work in um, medical anthropology. So. We went there, we looked around history, we had the opportunity to dig, to dig some graves and analyze some of the bones. It was really interesting to see that there's platforms that exist to tell based on your uh, bone structure, your where your lineage is from. So I had a great time. How much in common do the current ethnic Albanians have with some of the bones that were excavated from the Butrin site? Can we... Can we claim that we have a direct lineage to those ancestors? I think that is a that is a very highly political topic in in, the, in that part of the country. Uh, however, I think there is uh, from the excavation that has been done right now, there is groups of Albanians, there is groups of 
that you can directly trace to Albanians. There's groups that you can directly trace to Romans and Greek. So depending on the the grave group that we're excavating is where we can we can trace those individuals. Okay. In the interest of fairness, I won't cut out that bit. I'll I'll let the listeners find out that the Butrin site was actually multicultural. That's that is that is so. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Although I mean, it is in an Albanian land. There's no question about it. It was mainly operated by uh, by Albanians, but it would be foolish for us to to uh, to claim that in those parts of territories where the Roman Empire had pretty much conquered half of europe uh there were no traces of roma soldiers so yeah yeah definitely it doesn't come as a surprise but uh that must have been a quite an enjoyable experience working on the site and having first-hand exposure to to some of the findings and some of the reports that were coming out of your work is there anything that you're doing at the moment that you'd like to share with us as, as I said, one project that I have right now and I'm hoping to put into, into life is that we are hoping to do a, a mobile museum that will travel all throughout Canada. So it'll be in our van alongside with a, uh, with a performer that does music performance. And we'll start either in Vancouver and finish in the other end of Canada or start in oh, wow. Canada and finish in Vancouver. So this is in the process of finalizing and we're hoping to, to put it in place somewhere this year or the beginning of the next year. What will the museum contain? Uh, Albanian artifacts or, or be Albanian, what? History. Albanian history mainly and some cultural, you know, some clothing, you know, different uh we're still working with with a couple of people to find out, to finalize it, but yeah, that's what we're hoping to bring into life. Well, it's pretty cool, uh, impressive that you find the time to be doing your PhD, work as a researcher, and then still be be an activist on your spare time. It's really it's one of those days that it's one of those things that every time that I don't have anything to do, I feel lost, and I guess I thrive more into be into into pressure. So. Yeah, I'm the same, actually. I'm doing this podcast and it's actually evenings and weekends. I find myself that I can't just sit down and just watch TV or watch a film on a, on a Sunday evening. I feel like it's a waste of time. I need to be doing something productive. I'm not sure there's a condition for that, but uh, I, I feel like I'm losing out on opportunities if I just, just scroll through the internet, don't do nothing productive. So I'm sure you probably have the same, same itch that you want to scratch when you get involved with all of these um, different activities. Right. I, t- I totally understand. And I'm sure your work as a consultant doesn't, you know, doesn't help because you're busy, busy enough with that. But, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, there are people, I guess, like us that don't settle with what they have and just always want to do a bit more. So thank you very much for everything that you've done for the Albanian diaspora. And also thank you, of course, for uh, making the time on this podcast. It's been a great pleasure uh, speaking to you and finding out about your experiences and your current projects. I wish you all the best with your PhD and with all the different things that you get involved with in the future. Thank you for the space and opportunity that you provided me and then uh, we'll we'll definitely stay in touch. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye.